If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 8, please. The beginning and the ending of the psalm suggest that it is essentially a hymn of praise. Yet a major portion qualifies it as a so-called nature psalm, that is, a psalm of creation. Furthermore, there is a significant focus on the created dignity of man. The subject of this hymn is the excellence of God in his works of creation, a major theme of the wisdom literature. The psalm can be called a wisdom poem. It ponders God's exaltation of lowly humanity in giving them dominion over creation. Genesis 1, 28. Begin reading at Psalm 8, beginning at verse 1, beginning at the superscript. This is God's word. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. A Giddeth, according to Easton's, Bible dictionary is probably a stringed instrument of music. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with the glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Please turn with me to the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 8. Romans 8, we'll begin reading at verse 18 to verse 30. Romans 8, 18 through 30. The Apostle Paul never minimizes the fact or the severity of Christian suffering in the world. But it is still to be seen as insignificant in comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 18. In this paragraph, verses 18 through 30, the Apostle Paul elaborates his reference to suffering and glory in verse 17 and further develops his overall theme of Christian assurance and brings us back full circle to the beginning of this major section of the letter. The Christian's hope of glory frames the paragraph occurring at the beginning, verse 18, and ending in verse 30, and is its overarching theme. 
Believers facing the necessity of suffering with Christ in this world can nevertheless be confident and secure, knowing that God has determined to bring us through to our inheritance. Verses 18 through 22 and verses 29 and 30. That he is providentially working on our behalf, verse 28, and that he has given us his spirit as the guarantee of our final redemption, verse 23. Begin reading at verse at Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. This is God's word. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be, real, reveal, be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, are, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Open your Bibles to the to Psalm 8. Uh, if you have a bulletin, on the back of your bulletin, there is a brief outline. Uh, primarily, it contains... Scripture references and a series of names. I trust we'll get to each of those. Uh, they're there specifically, particularly once we get to the names, not so that you will, uh, not so that you'll quickly turn there, but so that you may be a Berean and check me when you get around to it. Just to, uh, because I, I will be making a point from all of those references. And I, and I want to make sure that, in a sense, you get the point. Uh, let me start this way. This is a, a bit of a, there's, there's some personal to this introduction. 
But let me begin this way. I suspect that in evangelical circles and even in reform circles, some of them at least, we spend more time talking about the sovereignty of God, that is, over the affairs of men, than we do thinking about the implications of that truth. The fact that God is totally sovereign when things aren't necessarily going the way we would prefer they went. We readily concede that God is sovereign over all things, that he brings events and circumstances to pass in accordance with his ordained will. And we can certainly trust in his promises that all those things are going to work out for our good as well as his glory. But if we really believe that, wouldn't the logical extension be, then why, why worry? You know, don't worry, be happy. Just Bobby McFerrin our way through life. A number of years ago, that was everywhere. Now, we can't do that because we recognize something is terribly wrong. It's terribly wrong with the world. It's terribly wrong with the people we know. It's terribly wrong sometimes in our own family. And if we're honest with ourselves, something's terribly wrong in our lives, our personal lives, a great deal of the time. And the problem is that the image of God... And man is marred. We're not not rightly living out the image for which we were created. Sin has corrupted it. And it's corrupted it beyond recognition. Almost. That is, except in the mind of God. And remember, the mind of God is so much above our minds. It's comforting to know that he knows far more things than we do. What was once pronounced to be, and if you were with us on Sunday evenings, we've been working our way through creation and now moving beyond the garden. What was once declared to be by God, and he doesn't lie, very good, has now been subjected to futility, to emptiness, to vanity. So much so that the entire creation is in bondage, and it's groaning, For redemption. Brother Waltz read to us about that. In our beloved country, and of course I grew up before a lot of you. (laughs) Not all of you, but before a lot of you. Ah. Everybody's life, everybody's life that I know, whether they recognize it or not, has been touched by abortion. Now, that's not the center of this message, but it is where I, where I really need to start. Since 1973, January 20th, I think it was, somewhere between 63 and 70 million Americans are not with us. I'm not going to call it what I think it is. I'm just pointing out legally they're not with us. Missing 73 or 63 to 70 million people is not a little thing. We've got room for them. Our economy could handle them. Having them paying Social Security taxes might be a good thing for some of us. I'm sorry, as soon as I get the pulpit, things start dripping, so I'll try to stay ahead of it. The statistics, 63 to 70 million, are 
conservative. Because a number of states, most especially California, reports no numbers. So one can only imagine how many Americans are missing. Now, I came to maturity, at least what the world would call maturity, in the 70s. The 70s, 1973 was the railway decision. The 70s were a different country. In a sense, we did things differently then. And all I mean is it, would, it was different. My first duty station as a commissioned officer in the Marines was in Hawaii. I was a rifle platoon commander. And we had, there were a couple that we were close friends with. The wife made a series of terrible decisions. There were a lot of terrible decisions being made in those days. And as a result, needed an abortion. It was perfectly legal. Nobody thought twice about it. She got it. It's been at least 45 years since that happened. And there, there are probably times in which she's never got over it. Lovely lady. I didn't come to the faith till 1988, though I profess to be a Baptist forever. That's what Southern Baptist boys do. I came to know the Lord personally in the middle of the night, all alone in the midst of 25,000, 50,000 young people. I was on the mall in D.C. It was 3 or 4 in the morning. It was drizzling rain. There were preachers preaching and prayers being offered. It was one of those March for Life, March for Jesus things. It was cold. I was leading a Southern Baptist youth group because I was that kind of Baptist. You know, take charge, do things, help the youth out, help my daughter out, that sort of thing. To this day, I can't explain what came over me. But all the circuits lit up. Soon thereafter, we transferred to Okinawa and Spent a couple of years there before the first Gulf War, and we were in good churches there, interesting churches, taught some, taught some Bible, knew a lot of Bible. There was a, in those days, kind of a typical you know, pregnancy help center, you know, choose life help center or something like that, run by one lady, uh, pretty well all by herself. It was a pitiful little work. A little building, somehow you rent, and people, charity would give, various churches would help it out here and there. And I, I had a group of GIs, young Marines, that, that we'd go over and do some things from time to time and visit with them. I don't think it ever amounted to much, and probably when her husband rotated off the island, it probably shut down. There just wasn't that much going on in that world. I wish I could say a whole lot of things have changed over time. When I first became the pastor here, there was one of those Choose Life centers right near our house. Right beside the Amco station, next next little building down. And there was two or three ladies there, and they would they would try to counsel people not to get abortions and try to make arrangements for for care and for babies. And I, I think one Christmas or one Easter or something, we tried to organize something to you know, pick eight or ten ladies that are going to have babies out of wedlock or babies they decide they're willing to keep or want to keep. And we put together baskets for them. And in a relatively short period of time, it just, I think it, though churches were trying to support it, I don't think they were trying enough, and it just folded. And 
wasn't financially viable. You can tell this a little person. Well, you know, every time I leave my house and drive down Giddings Road to the end and turn left and go over the bridge to, to get on Constance, before I get to that bridge, I pass by the house in which Justice Lewis Powell once lived. He was one of the seven in the 7-2 decision in 1973. And I read his bio this week, and, it, you know, he's, he's an honorable man in so many ways. He served, served in the Second World War. He, 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 he seems to have been a very good lawyer in an important law firm. He did so many good things. He says it, the evidence there was that his pro-abortion stance stemmed from an incident during his tenure in his Richmond law firm in which the girlfriend of one of his staff bled to death from an illegal self-abortion. And, and I mentioned that just to point out that, you know, I can understand how that would impact you. And we can stand back and make all kinds of judgments about it, but that would impact you. I'm personally connected to this. And for whatever reason, that was the decision he made. On the table, in the, in the vestibule, I guess it is, in addition to some vegetables that somebody gave us, you're welcome to carry off vegetables or avocados and, and maybe some eggs are still out there, I don't know. But there's a stack of books. They all look like this. All right. They're there purposefully. There, there will be more coming in of the same book. So what I would ask if you're interested is that you pick up a copy and look it over. It was written by a man named Mark Jones. A number of us have heard Pastor Jones speak at various conferences. He's the minister of Faith Reform Presbyterian Church in Vancouver, Canada. He's a, he's a, he's a pretty well-known theologian. It's a beautifully written book. It's easily understood. It is emotionally charged. And is devastatingly convicting. It's an easy read, and it's a very hard read. Most of you can read it in less than an hour. If you choose to read it, you won't forget it. And if you ever have occasion to talk to someone or hear of someone who's talking to someone who is contemplating an abortion you'll wish you had a copy. And I hope you will remember where there is one. So I encourage you to read it. Pick one up and read it. Uh, if you can't use it right now, bring it back and we'll put it on the shelf. And as I say, there's a few more coming. So that you'll know where it is. And I realize most of us aren't going to have that opportunity. But some of us are. And you don't quite know when. It's best to be prepared. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we live in such a time and place 
We thank you that we, we are known by the unchanging God. The God that knew us before time, redeemed us in time, and preserves us for eternity. We thank you for the opportunities we have to influence a minor circle in this day and age. And we pray, Lord, that we will be faithful to do so, keeping in mind that you are a work in and through our lives for our ultimate good and for your ultimate glory. Keep us satisfied with what you have brought into our lives and keep us expectant for what you're going to do in the future. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Brother Walt read to us from Psalm 8. I'd like to call your attention to verse 4. In light of the fact that God has created everything around us, the glorious heavens, the seasons, what is man? Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? What exactly is man that the creator God of the universe cares about him? You may have noticed, and I want to call your attention to it in case you didn't, that the psalmist, and it was David, but of course David moved by the Holy Spirit. He's one of the holy men of old. This is the word of God. Doesn't focus his attention upon the unborn. He doesn't focus attention upon young people. He doesn't focus attention upon the infirm, the sick, or even the elderly. And I and I started there because this message is not entirely, not specifically about abortion, though it probably seems to be right now. It's about the sanctity of all human life. And it's intended to help us think about the answer to the question posed in Psalm 8.4. What is man that you are mindful of him? What's it about man that makes him so special? The answer is revealed in the very beginning, in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1.26, when all the other critters and things have been made, there's a crowning to that creation. The Lord says in Genesis 1.26, and he says to himself within the Godhead, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And of course he did. And after that, we're told in verse 31 of chapter 1, he said, everything is not just good. Everything is very good. Of course, then came the fall. And after the fall, nothing that had been created was very good anymore. Nothing that had been created. The uncreated God, he's he's still perfect. But everything that had been created, from the angelic realm to the fish in the sea, was no longer 
Very good. We read that all creation, Brother Walt read this too, all creation was subjected to futility, to emptiness. All creation groaned for redemption. Men became self-centered. I mean, the first thing Adam and Eve, the man and the woman said, was, it wasn't my fault. The serpent made me do it. The woman you gave me made me, made me do it. Men became self-centered. Men became covetous. Men became enslaved to their emotions, which leads to murderous acts of rage. We will perhaps get there this evening. In order to restrain those kinds of passions, it was necessary that God give government to to restrain evil and reward good. I mean, that was the purpose and It has a scriptural basis. So government was established by God after the fall. Because up until that point, it was every man for himself. And it was a terrible situation. Men's thoughts were on evil continually. And then all but eight of them drowned. And all is a huge number. When the sea gives up its dead, it's going to give up perhaps billions from that flood. Genesis 9, 6, post-flood. God said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man, and that's plural, by mankind, organized mankind, the basis of government, shall his blood be shed. Why? Why is it such a serious thing? I mean, clearly there's been murders been going on right from the beginning. Why is it so serious? Verse 9 continues, because God made man in his own image. That's why it's so serious. Man is made in the image of God. Old men, healthy men, Young men growing, babies, infants in the womb. Man is made in the image of God. And God is mindful of men. How mindful? That leads us to a number of other passages. First, Psalm one. 39. Psalm 139, again the psalmist, again David, but it's the Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit of God speaking here. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. How well does God know you? How well did he know David? He says, you know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. In other words, you know everything I do. And you know everything I am doing. You discern my thoughts from afar. You know what I'm thinking. And you know what I will be thinking. This this, This is knowledge. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. In other words, absolutely nothing is hidden from God. Nothing. 
In fact, it's so specific in verse 4 that even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before I say the words, you know what I'm going to say, is what David's saying. This is knowledge beyond anything we can imagine. You hem me in from behind and before, and you lay your hand upon There's a sense in which our lives are orchestrated. Now, this is not an assault on your free will because you do what you want to do. But life is orchestrated. And verse 6 says, such knowledge is, when it says too wonderful, that's beyond anything I can imagine is what he's saying. Too miraculous for me to understand. I cannot attain it. And then the next four verses, that there's nowhere I can go where this isn't going on. To the heavens, into the ground. It doesn't make any difference. There's nowhere this isn't going on. Now, God's the creator of all things. He's distinct from the all things. He's distinct from his creation. So verse 11 says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light and the light about me by night. It'll all be night. He's moving into a section here where he's talking about you before you were you. Or before you knew you were you. He's talking about an area here in the womb. Even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night's as bright as the day. Darkness is the same as light to you. The one who said, let there be light, and there was light, isn't restricted by light and darkness. He sees everything equally. Look at verses 13 through 16. If I say, I'm sorry, for or because, verse 13, you formed my, see how personal that became? You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, we like hearing that part, but the implications of this are quite serious. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful your works. We've already hit over that wonder. That's miraculous, the things that you do. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I I was made, in a sense, nobody quite understands how this works, but I was made in secret. I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What he's describing here, we probably think, maybe, possibly, we've discovered is something like the double helix DNA structure in which chromosomes come together and all kinds of things well beyond my understanding happen. And that's, what, that's why nobody in this room looks like anybody else. I mean, we're all absolute unique creations. You know, to God, he knows everyone individually. As the individual unique creation they are. Talk about knowledge that's too wonderful for us to get our mind around. It says in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. I mean, I was, I was what they told us in the 70s was just a mass of tissue. 
if they told us anything. It certainly wasn't anything. It wasn't it was unformed. It was just there. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Call it what it is. It was an embryo, no matter how small. From one cell to multiple cells. And at that point, don't stop there in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and at that point, in your book were written down, every single one of them, all the days that were formed for me. Even though there hadn't been a single one yet. Now, is that personal knowledge or not? Is God mindful of this individual? Why is he mindful of this individual? Because this individual is made in the image of God. You see, it does, it does come together. What this is saying is before a mother even knows she's pregnant, the Lord's already showing his care for the child who hasn't, hasn't really hardly any, for, no formation is actually that anybody would detect has happened. Because that intimately involves there. Give you some specific examples from the scriptures. Jeremiah 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah is an interesting character. If be lovely to do a study of it. One of the other, other elders will be glad to tell you all about it. Right at the beginning, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb. Now we just backed up another step. Before I knew your substance unformed. Now before that, I knew you. What do you do with that phrase? See, now we're dealing with Ephesians 4. Time frames. We're dealing with those the Lord chose before the foundation of the world. But before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And that verse continues, Jeremiah 1.5. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you aside. I, I assigned you a specific task in my plan. For my glory and for the good of my people. Here's what the task involved. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Well, Jeremiah responded here in a sense, as soon as I realized that, and of course that wasn't then, that was much later. Lord, I don't know how to talk. I'm only a kid. I'm a young man. I can't do it, is what he's saying here. And the Lord said to me, don't say you're just a youth. For to, every, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. You're going to do what God ordained you're going to do. And whatever I command you, you're going to speak. And he could have told him how this going to receive, and he kind of does. He said, listen, don't be afraid of them. I'm with you to deliver you. Now that excuse about I can't talk real well, Moses tried that. 
Moses has had that encounter at the burning bush. He's 80 years old. I tried something 40 years ago. It just it didn't work. Now you want me to go back? I mean, if, if I did go back, who would I tell him sent me? Well, tell him the I am sent you. That's my name. Tell him I am sent you. The self-existent being sent you. And if they have any doubt, here's a couple of things you can do, you know, with your staff and such that are miraculous. If they need a little further proof. Even after all that, Moses says, but Lord, I'm not eloquent. I've never, even in the past, I've, I've really never been able to move men with words. And the answer from the Lord there, Exodus 4.11 is, who do you think made your mouth? Who made man's mouth? For that matter, if the mouth doesn't work and he can't say word, he's mute. Who do you think made him that way? Now there's a revelation from God. Or what if he was deaf? Who do you think made him deaf? Or the fact he can see? Or the fact he can't see that he's blind? He says, is it not I who did that, O Lord? So, you need to go. And Moses tries a couple of other ways to get around, around it, but you know he's going to have to go. The, the Lord has him hemmed in. Well, isn't that what the psalmist says the Lord does? Hemmed in from behind? There's an open door, but it's only the way I want you to go. Almost nobody is being born these days with Down syndrome. I mean, there's, it's like we've cured it. Because there are already more Down's children, Down syndrome children. We haven't cured it at all. We're running that amniocentesis business. We're checking out what things look like in there. And if we get certain markers saying, well, that, there's great likelihood that's a Down syndrome child, then we abort it. Certainly recommend it be aborted. Same thing with cerebral palsy. I suspect there's markers for RTS. And if they were flagged and decisions were made to abort, then baby Grayson, little Grayson that we pray for on Wednesday nights, or Lukey, who's blessed our church immeasurably, wouldn't be here. Because that was the thing to do. Unless, of course... God knew them when they knit them together in the mother's womb. We have a member of our church who was in the womb, could have been diagnosed with spina bifida occulta. And if he had been, by the test, he could have possibly been aborted. Ah, They didn't run the test. And though he, to this day, still has some of the markers, he doesn't have the syndrome. But the test would have showed there was a great likelihood that he would. How about this? The Apostle Paul in Galatians 1, 15 and 16 says, he speaks of God and refers to him in these terms. God, he who set me apart before I was born. What? Saul of Tarsus? Paul the Apostle was set apart for something before he was born? 
Yes, he called me by his grace. He was pleased at one point to reveal his son to me. He did that in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Yes, but you were born Saul of Tarsus. And you were raised at the feet of Gamaliel. And you probably knew Nicodemus. And you might have been a witness to any number of things here, but you had to defend the law and defend Judaism against this imposter Messiah. And you orchestrated the murder of people who believed in him. And Paul says, he set me apart before I was born. And he called me by his grace. And he revealed to me his son. And he did it in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Well, see, that's that's one end of life spectrum. I mean, this this goes back to when you're when you're in the womb, when you're a young man, when you're when you're conception. What about the other end of life spectrum? Now, Old Testament saints, if you're in those early chapters of Genesis, I mean, there's some longevity issues. Methuselah lives 969 years. How do we explain that? Well, come Sunday night, not necessarily this Sunday night, and you'll, you'll understand it better. Moses, uh, Adam lived 930 years. And yes, we know three of his sons. We also know he had other children. How many kids do you suppose you'd have, you'd have if you lived 900 years? I mean, maybe we were experienced with the two you got, that would be it. <laughs> but... But that's not the way it works. And there's reason. Here's these names. We begin with the friend of God, Abraham. The reference is there, so I don't have to keep saying it. But it's right there on your sheet. Abraham, the son of God, the friend of God. He lives to be 175 years old before he dies. He had two sons. One's named Ishmael. The other's named Isaac. Ishmael, of course, is the son of the bondwoman, not the son of promise. That'd be Hagar. And he lived to the ripe old age of 137 years. Isaac is the son of promise. He doesn't live to be 137, he lives to be 180 years old. See, it's better to be the son of prophets, of promise. Well, let me, let's look at the life of Isaac for a little bit. Before we even get there, why did God give us these, these kind of numbers? I mean, what's, what's the point of knowing how old people were when they died? How old, how old they were when certain things happened? Well, I think I can demonstrate one of the points. Certainly not everything. The mind of God's beyond our understanding. Isaac lives to be 180 years old. He wasn't married until he's 40. It wasn't until 20 years after he was married before his wife has the twins, Esau and Jacob. Which means Isaac's 60 years old at that point. Now, 40 years after being born, Esau marries two Hittite women. At that point, how old is Isaac? He's 100 years old. Now, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, told Isaac she would be distraught if Jacob married one of them as well. 
and prevailed upon Isaac to send him back to where they came from, Padamaran, where he met good old Laban, you know, who's a bigger swindler than Jacob is at that point. Hmm? Of course, all that revolves around the stolen blessing, which kind of occupies most of Genesis 27, and culminates in the fact that Esau, when he found out what Jacob did to him, says, well, as soon as dad, that'd be Isaac, dies, I'm just going to kill him. See, men's hearts haven't changed much. That's going to be the answer. I'll just kill him. So, that means Isaac's, Isaac's about 100 years old when Jacob receives the blessing that Isaac wanted to give Esau. But he's so blind and so seemingly befuddled that he can't tell one son from another. Now, that's not a good place to be. You get taken, even by those that love you. So he's at least 100 years old. Jacob leaves, goes out and serves Laban for 20 years, you know, seven years apiece for each of the wives, and then another six years. That's all in those texts. Well, by the time he's done that, Isaac's 120 years old. Now, when Isaac come, when Jacob comes back in the land, he doesn't immediately go back and see Isaac. He doesn't see him for another 10 years. By which time Isaac's 130 years old. But ultimately he does meet at Mamre, at Hebron, Kirjath Arba. And then Isaac dies at the ripe old age of 180. 50 years after that meeting. Those numbers tell you that though Isaac lived to be 180 years old, it looks like the last 80 years of his life, he was sightless. Would you call that, would we call that in our day your best life now? You suppose God had any purpose in that? I mean, all these things are given to us and the dates are there. The ages are there. You can follow the trail. It's meant to convey something to us. Is Isaac's life, after he goes blind, of any less value to God than it was before? See, we look at people and say, well, that's life unworthy of life. That was the Nazi argument. That's that's the life we see all around us. Lives that will impinge upon our lives. Well, we're better off without them. I'm not going to get to do what I want to do. It's an easy answer. It kind of makes sense. But it doesn't make sense if you just stop and think. Let me continue on just a little bit here. You know, toward the end of his life, and it was a long life as well, Jacob's very ill in Genesis 48. The first verse of that, he, he can't recognize his own grandchildren. He knows they're there with Joseph. And he must have met them. He doesn't remember who they are. He has to be told. And yet, he is given at that age and stage in his life the prophetic wisdom, prophetic sight, 
to bless each of his 12 sons, including those two grandsons, and to include in that blessing the great messianic prophecy of verse 10 in chapter 39 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The third son is the one through the line is going to come leading to the Messiah. You know, hadn't he done everything he needed to do by the time he got to Egypt and saved his family? Apparently not. Let's move 2,000 years ahead. One day a little boy, a baby boy, is being taken to the temple. And there's an aged man there named Simeon. And Simeon has been told, well, I mean, let me just read a passage to you. He was told, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. He'd been told he wasn't going to die until he'd seen the redemption, the consolation of Israel. He said, Lord, you can, you can take me home now. I have seen what you promised. I've seen your salvation. I've seen what you prepare in the presence of all the people. I've seen a light for revelation to the Gentiles. I've seen what you're giving for the glory of our people Israel. And with him is an old lady. And the old lady's either 84 years old or she's been a widow for 84 years. Either way, you know, that's an old lady. And she's there and she witnesses this. Why was she even preserved so long? Well, listen to what she does. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, of the child she'd seen, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We've hit on this before. As we're going through some of our I Am passages. What about that man in John 9, 1, who'd been born, he was born blind. He's blind from birth. The disciples ask the question, well, who sinned? Did his parents sin? Is this the iniquity of the fathers being visited on the son? And Jesus said, no, he didn't sin and they didn't. That isn't what this is about. This, the fact he's blind is about the glory of God. And then he healed him. And boy, did that set off fireworks. Or, after the day of Pentecost, John and Peter are heading into the temple. And they pass by the beautiful gate. And there's a man on his way there, but he isn't going by his own power. He's being carried like he is every day. Carried to that place because it's prime begging ground for alms. Because he can't move. He's he's been lame from birth. You know, the same thing applies. He's clearly looking for something. When they turn to him, he's looking with expectation for something because that's what beggars do. And Peter and John say, gold and silver we don't have. But what we do have, we'll share. In the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Messiah who was murdered by the religious authorities and the civil authorities and the people screaming for his blood 51 days ago. In the name of him, rise up and walk. And the man did. Now why was the man born lame? The same reason the man was born blind. 
Why is Lukey an RTS baby? Why is Grayson an RTS baby? Why don't people want Down syndrome children? Was it easier not to be bothered by them? Not to be burdened by them? All this is happening because the image is marred. We don't see people as we should see people. And it's weighing on us. Whether we recognize it or not, can anything be done to restore the image? Well, the scriptures, as Brother Mike shared with us in the previous hour, they start there, but they're just filled with admonitions not to worship any image. Don't make one. Don't carve one. Don't, don't do anything to create anything that you're going to bow down to and worship and serve. And of course, our whole society is based upon you need this, you need this, you need this, you need this. This will make your life whole. From somebody else, to more children, to less children, to more things, to less things, to a different place, a different job, a different situation. All of those things. I often use Galatians 4.4 to point out there was a time, the fullness of time, when God sent his son. He sent him purposefully and in a specific way. He, He sent him born of a woman, And born under the law, we are talking about the incarnation. He came for a specific task to redeem, that is to pay the sin debt of those who were under that law. Now, that's a sin debt we can't pay. And because we can't pay it, it condemns us. But he came to pay it. He came to pay it so that the people he was paying it for could receive adoption as sons. And as the Colossians passage on your outline tells us, in doing so, he, the one who sent his son in the fullness of time, he, God the Father, delivered us. He delivered us from the domain of darkness that we don't realize we've been living in and transferred us from and to, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And it's in the beloved Son, in Him, that we have redemption. And that redemption involves the forgiveness of our sins. And that happens because we are in Christ, and Christ, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. That's the image. That's how the image is restored. That's how everything is made right. If you're a believer this morning, there, there is great assurance for you. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, 49 tells us, just as, or surely as, just as surely as, you were born in the image of the man of dust, in the likeness of Adam, you will bear the image of the man of heaven, the second Adam. That's, that's the assurance. 
That takes us right back to the passage Brother Walt concluded with the New Testament reading in Romans 8, 29. Those that God the Father foreknew for the foundation of the world, he predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. It all comes back to getting the image right again. There's nothing we can do about that. We forfeited. But God has made a way for it to be done. Being conformed to the image of his Son in order that, that the Son might be firstborn, preeminent among many brethren. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, therefore, we all with unveiled faces. We can see this clearly if we would. We can behold the glory of the Lord. And as we behold that, we are being transformed. Actively, this is going on in our lives. We are being transformed into that same image. The image that was lost. The image that was marred. From one degree of glory to another. Who's doing that? Second Corinthians 3.18 tells us this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. Part of that ongoing process of being changed from glory to glory into the image of the Son is why you're here today. Why you're among the people of God today. While you're sitting under the word of God today. While you're part of a group of believers. Whether you're formally aligned with us or not. You're, you're, you, you, there's a desire on your part somehow to be connected to people who identify with the God that's working in your life. None of this is happenstance. But there's, there's little more to be said. But that we owe to the Lord everything. He's bought us with his blood. He treasured us before anybody knew us. He knew us. He treasures us today. He treasures what we are. Insignificant little us. We are the apple of his eye. He takes pleasure in our lives. We should live for his glory. And we should treasure, we should treasure the human lives all around us, even those of people we have problems with, because they are made in the image of God. Let's pray. Lord, your wisdom is too wonderful, so far above us we cannot grasp it. Yet, Lord, you have deigned to to make things clear enough that we can see our need and see an outstretched hand of grace. And then you give us the desire to grasp that hand, to take it. We think we're holding on to you, and point of fact, you're holding on to us. And Lord, Lord, the comfort of your grace guards us, leads us, gives us peace and allows us to rightly represent you in the midst of of a generation that's lost its way. And only by the grace of God have we found our way. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.